Welcome to the Dental Code Advisor Podcast, hosted by Practice Boosters coding experts, Dr. Charles Blair and Dr. Greg Grobmeyer. Interpretations of the CDT codes represent the opinions of our experts. For the latest CDT codes and official interpretations, contact the American Dental Association or visit ADA.org. You are responsible for your own use of the CDT codes. Tune in now for timely information regarding dental coding. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Dental Code Advisor podcast. Now, we all know that dental insurance coding can be a very confusing topic. If done correctly, it ensures accurate record keeping and communication with payers. If done incorrectly, it can create confusion, delay reimbursement, and at worst, create some serious legal complications. Well, the goal of the Dental Code Advisor podcast is to take away some of that confusion and to help our listeners learn how to legitimately maximize their reimbursement of dental claims. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Greg Grobmeyer. I practiced clinical dentistry for over a decade in Tennessee until I was diagnosed in 2010 with colon cancer at the age of 37. I ended up having the whole right side of my colon removed and was left with kind of a semicolon. I was also left with numb fingers and feet due to neuropathy. And since no one likes a dentist that frequently drops things, I have been coaching and consulting and writing about dental topics ever since. With me today, I have an absolute legend in the dental insurance consulting world, Dr. Charles Blair. Dr. Blair, welcome to the podcast, and I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you very much, Greg. It's really a pleasure to be here, and I'm just uh, thrilled that we have the podcast and the ability to uh, transmit really some vital information to the listeners. I started in dentistry a long time ago, back 1974 grad, went into private practice roughly about 10 years. And then I founded Blair McGill with uh, John McGill back in those uh, years a long time ago. And then ultimately down the road, got into coding and then uh, brought out the uh, code book in 2005, Coding with Confidence. And then in 2010, acquired the Insurance Solutions newsletter. Uh, We then got Practice Booster cranked up our online uh, website. And then we added, in addition, later an administrative book that is just a monster on coding for insurance, and then later a medical dental cross-coding manual. So a number of uh, products along the way there, Greg. And it's been my pleasure to speak and lecture to thousands of uh, practitioners out there, everything from the Hinman meeting to the New York meeting to the California meeting. Also, I've done one-on-one. We call it a revenue enhancement program, kind of a personal coaching with offices, runs about two and a half hours. So that's a little bit of my uh, background, and I'm just thrilled to be here today. Yeah, and I've gotten to sit in on some of those revenue enhancement seminars, and they are just absolutely wonderful for what you're offering to these dentists to be able to go through their codes, look to see what they're doing correctly, what they're doing incorrectly, and give them some guidance along the way. And we look very forward to picking your brain about different topics we're going to discuss today. We're going to be talking about the Code Maintenance Committee itself, who they are, what they do, how they maintain the code set year to year. So they're part of a larger group from the ADA the uh, Council on Dental Benefits. The Code Maintenance Committee itself uh, meets every March, I guess it is, in Chicago at ADA headquarters and goes over all the proposed changes and things for each year to keep the CDT current. There are altogether 24 voting members of the Code Maintenance Committee. There's five from the ADA. There are 
12 members from dental specialty organizations. So each one from, you know, one from Indo, one from Perio, all the way down. There's also one from the AGD, the American Dental Education Association, some from different insurers. And so all together that they meet, they go over all the proposed changes and they get to decide uh, what stays, what goes, what changes each month. So I think it's a little fascinating. Now, you've actually gotten to sit in and listen to some of that, haven't you? I have, Greg. I've sat in and uh, heard the deliberations uh, really over many years. And, and to me, it's just so fascinating because I'll say kind of lined up on one side of the table would be kind of the dentist, so to speak, the various specialties on the other side of the table, so to speak, are the insurance payers. And sometimes that uh, that interaction can really be uh, robust. And uh, this <laughs> last year, it was a, it was a virtual meeting. But uh, you can imagine the going back and forth. And it's also fascinating at this point that in terms of the voting, we've really got more members, I'll call it on the dental side of the table, dentist side of the table than the payer side of the table. Basically, the dentist can vote in a code. And it's really interesting to watch. And of course, everybody votes, but then the payers can always say, well, we're just not going to cover that. So mm-hmm. just because there's a code, Greg, does not mean that it's going to be covered. Absolutely. And there's a little politics that plays into it, too, isn't there? Kind of going back and forth between the associations that say, you know, I'll, I'll support your proposed changes if you support mine, trying to get things passed through. But as you said, just because they make changes doesn't mean that the insurance companies are actually going to back that up with dollars for the actual patients themselves. Right. And you bring up a good point. Uh, There is a little bit of naturally uh, uh, politics there. The AGD might uh, want something and the perio people uh, specialty would like something and they may, you know, say, hey, please consider what I'm bringing to the table and vice versa. Uh, That's a little bit of how it works. And that brings up, Greg, also that anybody, anybody can submit a code and the cutoff date, I believe, is in November each year. You can go to the ADA website and find that. So anybody can submit a code. But recommendations, though, is to work through your organization. So if you're a member of uh, AGD, as an example, or you're an endodontist, work through your organization because if they adopt what you would like to do, it's a lot of weight when it then goes before the committee. So anybody can submit a code, but the players there, the voters there have got a big say naturally that they're voting. But literally anybody, even just a general dentist who's out there and they determine that, hey, this particular thing, I don't really have a good way. I'm 999ing this particular code because I don't have a good number to fill out on the claims form. They can actually go to the ADA website themselves and submit something. Is that correct? Yes, they can. It could be a dental assistant. It uh, You need no title. You just submit the code and then it would be or what you would like. And then the committee will at some point in their deliberations uh, bring that up. They may combine it. Who knows? Somebody else may have submitted a similar code. So the committee might join those two uh, together. But it's really fascinating to see it work. And, uh, you know, the payers, listen, the payers come in and they've been instrumental the last few years on getting codes that are more specific. And what I mean by that is like the arch. So if I'm replacing a lost and broken retainer, then in the past, we just had a code for it. And then the office was supposed to 
label, you know, is that a maxillary, is it a mandibular? Now we have a more specific code. We've got a specific code for the maxillary arch and a specific code for the mandibular arch. So we have gotten that. Uh, many of the codes now are more specific, and actually the payers wanted that. You know, it's a real myth out here that a lot of dentists think, oh, the insurance companies are trying to delay my payment and so forth. Well, they really aren't. There's a lot more labor involved. Uh, They'd rather pay a claim, get it off the table. They really would. And I've talked to them many, many times uh, over a beer at these various conferences. They want to get it off the table. Now, one reason there is certain plans. The insurance company uh, on the self-funded plan just administers it, and they get a flat fee essentially to process the claim. They don't have any money at issue. And so that's one reason why the payers have, uh, have actually wanted to get some of these codes to be more specific and always support that. There were, I think this last uh, go-around proposed for 2022. I don't remember how many actual requests were submitted, but 46 changes actually made it through and were approved. There were uh, 16 new codes added for 2022. Six were deleted. We've got uh, 14 that are being revised and 10 that are editorially changed, meaning just some little rinky-dink punctuation grammar kind of thing. But there were some significant changes. Each and every year, there are some big changes. I think that's one thing that most dentists don't really keep on their radar is when these codes change, they may be submitting on their insurance forms a code that doesn't even exist anymore. It's been deleted. It's been uh, changed to something new, and that's going to delay the processing of their claim. That's going to, you know, maybe affect their reimbursement altogether. If they're not staying on top of what these uh, new and amended codes are, they're really doing themselves a disservice. They really are. Another thing that's fascinating sometimes is dentists will make up a code like internally, maybe deliver crown or whatever it might be. So they may latch on to a code right now in that code set. You remember that the CDT code set starts off with 0120 numerically and goes up to 9999. So I saw an office one time. It was an interesting story, but they made up a code and little did they know that it was a tobacco cessation code. (laughs) (laughs) And so when they submitted it on a patient, the patient ended up getting a letter from his employer saying, you're a smoker. You're going to pay another extra 50 bucks a month or whatever. So that's their mistake actually (laughs) flagged them for health insurance issues, didn't they? Flagged them for health insurance. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it's, you have to be conscious of the changes, the codes that you're submitting. They do have meaning. Even if you're using those in-office codes, I think it's great your advice to keep them out of the code set set of numbers. So you're you're trying to shoot for below 120. That's correct. Know, and trying to use those in-office codes that are a low number. So nothing is getting confused going forward. Exactly. So. And then when you get a printout, the printout is very clean to review. You're reviewing just the codes that you're really submitting and the codes for which you did that uh, particular uh, procedure. Absolutely. And again, it's it's critical staying up with it. Use a great analogy about certified public accountants that I really like. Would you tell us what that is? Sure. You know, I give the analogy, CPAs, when they go through their training and so forth, there's just a huge emphasis on keeping up with the tax law. Uh, a CPA wouldn't be caught dead 
with uh, last year's uh, taxes in any way, either with a publication sitting on their desk or looking it up on a website or uh, in their software. They just wouldn't be caught dead. And yet we dentists are highly trained, but in dental school, there's very little emphasis on this. So a lot of dentists get out. And, and what's ironic is that the studies show that it costs about 8 to 10% to run a front office. So if it's a, if I've got a million dollar practice, I'm spending about 80,000 to a hundred thousand on a several people out front. You know, it's just such a shame. And we see this so often is where the dentist won't give his team a hundred dollar code book <laughs> and yet spending all that money on the team. We need to give them the tools. And so I, I would just really admonish anybody listening here. Please, please keep up. Give your team the correct tools maximize that legitimate reimbursement out there because it's a changing ball game. Back in my day, I go back about 40, 50 years here in dentistry and, and I just look back and I practiced dentistry about 10 years in there and I would just, my clinical notes were horrible. I'd just say uh, tooth number three crown and anesthetic so much and that was it. And today, as you know, uh, narratives are not looked at as much anything like today. The big conversion is these insurance companies are wanting to see actually the doctor's clinical notes. And if they didn't say it, it never existed. Gosh. And those narratives, like most of those, or a lot of the time, they may not even actually read the narratives. You know, if they decide to dig into it, they are going to read the narrative. But the fact that there is a narrative doesn't mean that it's going to actually be read. That's absolutely true. And and some of the plans even will, they can program their computers. Was a narrative written? Yes. Then pay the claim. Was a narrative not written? No, it wasn't. Like a code that we really emphasize is the palliative code 9110, which is a minor procedure done at the emergency visit. There you you always uh, do a narrative. And one other point is narratives can't uh, be more than 80 characters and be guaranteed to get to the insurance payer on the other end of the uh, Internet circuit. So your software might accept more than 80 characters there, Greg. But so you might do a 120 character message, but only 80 gets through to the uh, payer on the other end. And they're just kind of dreaming what you might have written. Because <laughs> the software will truncate that down That's to, right. to 80 characters, and then you've lost half of what you're trying to say. So hard to argue your point when half of your argument is in the ether, doesn't even exist. So I understand. But uh, yeah, if it's actually reviewed by a person, that's different. But uh, when the computers are just scanning through these things, it may not get seen. So that's absolutely the truth. I wanted to ask you a little bit about in-network versus out-of-network, how much does it matter about what you're coding? If you're not in-network, is it still that important to keep the codes correct? Well, that's another kind of old wives' tale out here in dentistry is that, and we see this, the doctor says, well, I'm out of network and kind of acts like, well, now I can do like I want to. But from a coding perspective, it's identical. In other words, the ADA emphasizes that to code what you do. So if I'm doing a pan and bite wings, I've got to put that down. I could never put down a full series. But on the other hand, when I put down a pan and bite wings and turn that into the payer, they legally, and this is absolutely legal, can pay an alternative benefit of a full series amount of money. So always code what you do. And really the difference is in the write-off. 
And so this write-off side of the game is very, very complex. So when I'm a member of a PPO, I'm in a new world. But as far as just reporting what we do, it's the same whether you're in-network or out-of-network. Yeah. And from a legal standpoint, too, not just making sure that you have accurate notes is what's going to keep you from losing a malpractice suit. Making sure that everything is accurate is a shortcut that a lot of dentists take that they really shouldn't be taking. That's right. And I talk about, you know, lightning can strike because I run into so many teams and doctors will say, well, we've never had a problem with that. It's kind of like somebody's been speeding down the interstate for the last 20 years and never been caught. And yet they're really speeding. They just hadn't had a flashlight in their face yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and so just because they haven't heard from the insurance industry doesn't mean what they're doing is approved and is okay. Absolutely. That's going to be a topic of some of our upcoming podcasts is how to stay out of jail, how to make sure that you're doing the right thing, that you're coding properly, that you're writing in the chart correctly, that your protocols are legal, not illegal. These are things that we're going to be talking about in the future on upcoming podcasts with you and with some of our other guests that we'll have. So I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to speak with you about it more. I believe that in the next session, we're going to be talking about the ins and outs of PPO contracts, understanding what those handcuffs are in the plan documents, how, how to obtain those, how to really know what it is that you're getting into when you sign up with a PPO. So we're going to be discussing that going forward. I look forward to that opportunity as well. Don't miss that one, folks. Our listeners, uh, be sure you get that next podcast because it's just loaded. We find that so many dentists don't realize the handcuffs that the PPO has and they don't look at the contract and have no knowledge of really the provider manual. So we'll go into detail with all of that next session. Well, fantastic. Well, Dr. Blair, it's been fantastic speaking with you today. I've enjoyed it. I'm hoping that our listeners are learning something about the CDT and the Code Maintenance Committee, where these things come from. They're not just some random numbers that are pulled out of the ether. These are really, really discussed and bounced back and forth amongst some very intelligent people figuring out what's appropriate in good, solid reporting. So I thank you for your time, and I look forward to our next session together. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Practice Booster, an e-assist publishing company. To learn more, visit dentalcodeadvisor.com.